Hello, and thank you for listening to Conquering Chaos and Mayhem. I'm your moderator, Breck Lover, and it's my pleasure to introduce the host of Conquering Chaos and Mayhem, Daryl Cully. Daryl, you enjoying your summer so far? Hey, Brett, it has been awesome. Yeah, and it yours? has been nice and warm. Well, it's been warm, but it's been a little bit smoky. So I guess it's uh, kind of uh, interesting that we're going to be speaking to a great guest lined up today, Daryl, with experience in safety consultancy, instruction, volunteer response. Let's welcome Arctic Fire Safety Services Limited President, Chris Levum. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, pleasure to have you. Daryl, I know you've got a long list of questions to be picking Chris's brain at, so I'm just going to sit back and enjoy the conversation. Hey, welcome, Chris. Um, first of all, it, it was great to meet you at the NFPA conference in Las Vegas. That is such a, a great event. Um, thousands of people from around the world. Uh, I believe it was four or 5,000 people at that event. Um, and we just happened to run into each other. Um, and, uh, you know, fellow Canadians. Uh, yes, bonding over $10 coffee. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which they added dollar tip to. Um, but uh, welcome. So you run a private fire department uh, specializing in wildfires. And um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, the, the service that you provide and the the I was impressed with the size of your organization. Sure. So we specifically deal with the wildland urban interface fire. So that's when you've got the raging fire heading towards the community. My crew and I stand between that fire and the structures to help uh, defend it as best we can. Uh, a lot of people get really fixated on the big wall of fire that comes towards uh, the community, but it's really the fire brands that destroy most of the homes. So if you look at what happened with Fort McMurray, and a few of these other communities, uh, the studies have shown that 95% of these fires have been destroyed, not by the big wall of fire, but by the embers flying into your gutters, if there's leaves, into your patio furniture, into your firewood, into your tall grass, your potted plants. So with that in mind, uh, we find that these homes are very, for the most part, salvageable, uh, able to be saved. I mean, it's just a matter of uh, having a few trained people that are able to stand there to uh, do our best to mitigate uh, the fuel load. Uh, you showed me uh, pictures of everything from from brush trucks to pumpers and tankers to um, even an ARF truck. We've got eight fire trucks, including the ARF truck, and I've got a crew of about 40 firefighters that work with me. It's still a pretty sizable complement. It's bigger than quite a few municipal volunteer fire services. Um no, in Alberta, though, there is a huge private firefighting complex where there's, I'd say, about 15 different companies and over 2,000 private firefighters that could be drawn upon to help with these uh, disaster situations. So it's a resource that the province has available to them and communities have available to them to, to give you a call and say, help, right? We've got this wildfire bearing down on our area. Um, we need some assistance. Um, this year you were very busy, particularly early in the year, um, as the the country basically um, was involved in uh, multiple major fires uh, from coast to coast back in uh, June primarily. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, where you were assigned and what, um, what your uh, teams were doing? Sure. So we were called up on May 4th to 
start off with the Drain Valley uh, fire. So we got the call at 1130 at night. And so mobilizing our crews at that time to make our way out there. Then halfway through that fire, the province said, hey, we need to shift some of these resources around because everything was called to the Grand, or sorry, Drain Valley first just because they're the first ones to call for help. But then we got our crew sent up to Wildwood out near uh, Yellowhead County. We had our crews go up to Grand Prairie County and we were out there for a few days. Then we had our, a few of our crews sent to uh, Northern Lights County, which is near Peace River. Then uh, we, we eventually got sent out to Peavine Metis Settlement, where I that's where I had five of my trucks uh, out there with about 20 firefighters. And I also took on the roll-up plan section chief and logistics section chief. Then after that, uh, had a bit about a, a week of respite, then sent our crews out to Yellowhead County again when uh, that fire flared back up. The benefit of having private organization on standby, ready to go, apparatus, firefighters, uh, well-equipped, well-trained, um, is that the province can call on you at any time and you're there to supplement their resources. Exactly. We see ourselves as a capacity boost. We're not there to overtake anyone. We're there just to help out where we can. Uh, most of my fighter, firefighters belong to volunteer fire halls at other places, or they've uh, used to be volunteer firefighters, but they got burnt out from the workload, which I think we can all appreciate. But they still have that taste for fire, so they still want to come in for a couple of weeks at a time and kind of get that adrenaline rush, get that fix that we all seem to need. But they go out there because they want to do it. And we're willing to put up with uh, worst case scenario. So no power, no gas, no heated showers, sleeping on cots or on mattresses and gymnasiums, eating um, food prepared three hours in advance from the Salvation Army. Like pretty much just about military rations and i can say this from experience being in afghanistan for a little bit for a military contractor so now our guys are willing to put up with a lot because we really have that dedication to help uh do our best to protect communities and that's why i got into this uh, years ago because i felt there's more that could be done especially from the private sector to uh, help protect communities rather than every year the government saying hey we've done our best but that's that i, I think there's more that can be done so i put my money where my mouth was and stepped up here you are, you're a backup resource. We we hear in the news, you know, firefighters coming in from around the world. Um, and, and let's face it, although we talk about them coming in from Australia and South Africa and, and Europe, they're coming in at great cost, right? It's, it's our taxpayer dollars are, are paying a premium to have these firefighters come in. And you're right there. Um, and available, ready to go. Yeah, it's a little frustrating, to be honest with you, because I've tried for many years to break into that national realm. So I'm very thankful that the province of Alberta has recognized how important these contractors are to help in there supplement the resources, because a lot of us are NFPA trained. However, the CIFC partnership does not see the value in engaging contractors at the national level which is really unfortunate because you have a group of experienced firefighters that could be an all hazard force similar to a Cal fire department, but they don't want us to have that uh, type one wildfire or type two 
uh, IA firefighter credential so that we're able to be interprovincial or even international in response. So you take this 2,000 person workforce of dedicated trained firefighters, you put them through this 10 day course in Canada or in the United States, they've actually abbreviated that for 1001 firefighters to a four day crossover course. And now you take this resource and you make that nationwide. There's Canada's got this uh, civil emergency response service available now. It's just a matter of how do we work out the logistics? How do we work out getting this firefighting force from Alberta to be able to go to Quebec or being able to go to the Maritimes, being able to go to BC, being able to go to, say, Australia in our winter time or down to Brazil or anything like that? And that's the challenge that's currently in place and we need to figure out how to get these uh, roadblocks out of the way so that we could get the people who want to go fight fire out there fighting fire and use the talent that we already have in the country rather than bringing in people from around the world. And the private sector can do it efficiently um, and effectively. And like you said, you only get paid for when you get called out. So it's... um, you know, there, there's a lot of cost savings in having a resource like this available. Well, I definitely think so. Uh, it's also a challenge too, at the same time, being an on-demand resource like that, because without having that retainer or capacity in place, uh, capacity charges in place, it does make retaining people a little bit more of a challenge. Um, whereas if you look at how Canada manages uh, our winters with snowplows, most of our snowplow operators are contractors. Uh, their manpower is paid a retainer to stay on for the season rather than disappearing to go drive long haul trucks rather than out there pushing snow. Uh, the trucks, the snowplows are kept on a retainer. So this way the maintenance is maintained. The insurance is kept up. The contractor keeps a few dollars in there for administrative fees, but they make their money when they're actually out there on the road pushing snow. And the last time I checked, we have a summer every year and we have wildfires every summer. So why can't we take, do something similar in Canada, take these contractors, uh, the 1001 firefighters, put them through that four-day crossover course, put them on a retainer. Uh, it could be a standby fee or whatever it is, but make them so that when you have a situation where typically I get called up 11 o'clock, 1130 at night, <laughs> and you know, it's... It's really handy having people that could be able to get their duffel bag, get on the road within half an hour, get to the shop, get in the trucks and have a three hour response time. Whereas you look at the Canadian forces for them to deploy 200 men, it takes them a week where I'm able to deploy 20 people in three hours. And if I was larger, I am sure I could get 200 people deployed in the same amount of time frame. So it's just a matter of, connecting these pieces together to be that resource that could be drawn upon. You've been deployed multiple locations this year. We know that uh, with climate change, we're only looking at uh, growing fire seasons, um, starting earlier, running later, um, and, and being more intense. This sector, this this private sector, um, provides the province of Alberta, certainly, with this flexibility. So is it the province that contracts you directly? 
or is it the municipalities being supplemented or financed through the, the province? So it's a little unique. Um, so with the case of Drayton Valley, we were called directly by Drayton Valley's incident command to deploy. But when we were sent up to Grand Prairie, we were sent through the uh, Alberta Emergency Management Agency through their, uh, I think they call it PEC now, Provincial Emergency Center. Then same with the rest of our deployments were all through the PEC, except for our second deployment with Yellowhead County, we were called directly through them. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. And my understanding for the, this recent funding announcement through the Alberta government that 90% uh, of the costs were being picked up by the province and the 10% were being picked up by the local community. With the exception of the Peavine Métis settlement, because they came into an agreement early on with uh, with Alberta Emergency Management that the province was going to take care of our invoice right away. So because they were a small community, they didn't have the same funds as uh, a very rich oil and gas tax base. So the arrangement was already made ahead of time to deliver the service and to make sure that I was taken care of, which is a great release, but also that the community was being taken care of because I wasn't the only contractor out there. There was uh, two other contract fire departments out there, as well as a number of municipal fire departments that were out there too. Right. Uh, so um, the one of the challenges is when you take a municipal fire department and send them into uh, interface fire, is that you've just taken them out of their own community um, for the emergency that are ongoing and still continue directly in their community. Um, so you're, you're stretching your resources even thinner um, by counting on these municipal services to fill in areas that um, are really a provincial responsibility. So. What does it is it going to take for other provinces, whether that's um, BC or Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario? Um, what's it going to take for them to to be able to look um, and say, "Hey, you know, this is this is a, a resource that we should be considering." I think it's just acceptance that the private sector could help. I mean, you look at Fort McMurray, for example, or even Fort Chippewan this year, where uh, the military do logistics, but we've only got so many uh, jets and helicopters with them that are available. So WestJet and Air Canada were used for airlifts. You look at the Salvation Army, where they're coming in and they're providing meals uh, to different residents uh, that are evacuated. We just need to be seen as another tool in the toolbox, not something that's kept at the bottom of the drawer, but something a little bit closer to the top. And just going back to your earlier comment there about uh, depleting resources for a community, I want to reflect on uh, what happened in BC back in 2017 with the Williams Lake fire complex that was happening. There was one community that I won't mention specifically, but uh, they sent a brush truck to Williams Lake along with their A team and left behind the B team and C team to manage the community. This was when they had a extreme fire hazard of their own, plus there's a known arsonist in the area. So sure enough, a fire happened. It just consumed 30 homes, caused 300 other residents to be, or 300 residences to be evacuated for weeks on end. Not to say this one crew would have uh, sa saved all those homes, but I'm sure there would have been one or two more saves and I'm sure those families would have appreciated it, especially since it's their tax dollars that paid for that brush truck to pay for the training for that fire team to for those firefighters to be there to protect their local community. And what's happened in BC 
and I know this because I was told directly, it's become a major fundraising for those fire departments. So they see this as a revenue source. So now you've got a public entity that's acting as a private for-profit business. And that's changing their alignment for what their priorities are. They're no longer resourcing for their own community's needs. They're resourcing for what can happen somewhere else. You take a community that in Alberta that doesn't have trees in Southern Alberta, but they're buying a sprinkler trailer. Um, that's $200,000 that they're gambling that's going to be called up to be making money for them in the next year or two. But that $200,000 could go towards a brush truck that could help deal with these raging grass or grass fires that grow exponentially down there, or it could be used for new SCBAs, better radios, something that really means more to the local community than a sprinkler trailer when there's no trees. So those are the kind of things that we need to start seeing some realizations on here that we can't be multitasking fire departments to be doing provincial response when they need to be taking care of their home communities. Let's develop, if we're not gonna have a provincial agency that's able to be an all hazards force, because right now I haven't seen any interest from any of the provincial agencies to create an all hazards firefighting force. BC is going to year round wildland firefighting, firefighting, but that's the closest we're seeing. But they're not training their wildland firefighters to be 1001 firefighters. They're just soaping through the 10 day course, but they're not just keeping them on throughout the, the, the winter as well. But they're not saying, okay, you guys could now go deal with a car fire or you guys can now go deal with a structure fire. They're not doing that. They're still strictly wildland. Whereas you take these, a contractor who's got 1001 firefighters, put them through the wildland interface uh, supplemental training and make them that backbone of the, uh, of the province. Make it a 200 man, 300 man force, something that's sizable, able to do a couple communities, being able to provide that supplemental resource to the local community. Uh, so this way they, the other towns are not depleting their own resources. Uh, because the whole concept of mutual aid, in my mind, was meant for if you have a warehouse fire or if you have a big barn fire or something like that, where it's going to take more than one or two towns to put out that fire. You're looking for a lot of resources to come in there. But it's only for a few hours. You're not expecting volunteer firefighters to go away for weeks or months on end uh, to go fight fire in another part of the province. I mean, they've got their own employers. They've got their own lives. They didn't sign on for this type of deployment, whereas... With this contractor workforce that's already accustomed to working for weeks on end in camps because that's how oil and gas works in Alberta. They're, they already live over a duffel bag. They're already used to working away from home like this. That's how they make their income. So why not utilize people that already have this mindset, who already have this ability, who are not going to be uh, breaking up their marriages because they're gone for weeks on end. They're not having disruptive family life they're not interrupting their own employers for being gone like this they're able to provide the service that's required and they have the training that's needed and they're able to work safely it's just a matter of utilizing this resource effectively and growing it to a point of where it can become a sustainable capacity that could be used throughout the summers in canada but also in the wintertime internationally as we saw this year um, with fires erupting simultaneously across the country. Um, it takes time to 
um, and time and a lot of money to bring in these additional resources, whether they're from, you know, Mexico or, or um, uh, Australia, South Africa, um, Portugal, Spain. And then they get called back. You know, we, we saw Ontario sending a lot of firefighters out to to Alberta and then calling them back because we had our own fires to deal with. Where if you got this resource, um, it, it certainly got a lot of potential um, to grow and make our systems more effective, more um, responsible tax-wise as well. Well, I think so because contractors, uh, by definition, are tend to be lean and mean. Um, we're not going to. My concern with this talk of creating a new wildland firefighting task force for Canada uh, that's a public service is it tends to get very top heavy very quickly and they start dealing with um, supplemental areas that are not really the core mission. So if you could take uh, trained firefighters and let's face it, most of these guys actually pay for their own 1001 ticket because they want to become municipal firefighters. So this gives them a chance to use that skill set right away. So they get out of fire school, they're eager, they want to learn, they've got the strong packs, and they still want to develop their skill sets. So let's get these people a shovel in their hand. Let's get them out there helping to fight the fires, build up these skill sets. So this way, after two or three years of this, they've built up that mental maturity, then they've got that experience behind them with the big fires. So that when they do apply for Calgary or Ottawa or Montreal or Halifax fire departments, they've already got that big fire experience. They understand the ICS. They understand how to deal with the, the worst case scenarios because they've now been through a few of these events where everyone's gone. The stress is there. Everyone is doing the best they can to re respond to the incident. But it builds that maturity that you may not necessarily get uh, if you're dealing with maybe two or three fires um, a month and the rest of your calls are medical calls, this builds up that real mental fortitude, I think. Yeah. So, so many, many benefits to uh, a private sector um, component as, like you said, just another tool. It's a tool that can be utilized and um, in the same way that, you know, um, these fire departments are renting apparatus or renting heavy equipment to respond to these calls. They're just renting, a, you know, a firefighting service. Um, so. Exactly. As a really good example is the Crete back in 2017, where even after the community was reintroduced back home after the evacuations were lifted, uh, the contract fire departments were still kept on along with the Crete being back in service. So the Crete firefighters dealt with any structure calls or MVIs and the contractors were there to maintain the wildfire assessed or wildfire risk that were still present. So it gave these members a chance to let their hair down a bit, knowing that they don't have to go out to every hotspot call because there's someone who's already able to go out there and deal with it for them. So this way, well, I mean, when you're a volunteer firefighter, you're 
you're giving up a lot of your time already, but you don't want to be giving up every four hours to go deal with a hotspot that keeps flaring up every time. Let's have a contract to go there and deal with that heat bog and just keep it contained rather than dedicating resources to it for weeks or even months on end. Well, thank you, Chris. Um, it was great to have the opportunity to meet you um, down at the NFPA. Um, and uh, as soon as I met you, I thought, we we're well, at the time, we were in the middle of the, the peak uh, wildfire season. And I thought this would be a, a great uh, podcast to have. So thank you for, for joining us. Um, and let's hope that there's some, some decision makers that are uh, – uh, listening in onto our podcast that say, Hey, there is another option out there. Let's, let's take a look at it. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity and I'm more than willing to talk with any agency and particularly first nations communities, because sometimes they do get left behind in the call outs. I'm more than willing to work with them to help protect their communities as well. We really appreciate you coming on today, sharing with us. And I'd like to thank our audience for joining us on Conquering Chaos and Mayhem. On behalf of our host, Daryl Cully, I'm Breck Lover. Thanks for listening.